Go ahead and grab a seat. And if you got your Bible, go ahead and grab that and meet me in Acts 18. Acts chapter 18. Skipping ahead a little bit, we'll get back to Acts 17 the next couple of weeks. And then really, we'll be done with Acts uh, until sometime in 2022. Um, because the, the preaching calendar is going to take us in some other directions throughout the fall, and I'm excited about. Acts chapter 18. Um, there's been this growing uh, dissonance or tension for me over the last few weeks and months. Because every week when I get up to do my work, you are resting from yours. And so I every week look out and I see teachers, business owners, journalists, daycare workers. I see social workers and photographers and plumbers and bakers. I see retirees who have pressed pause on that work. And so here's you doing that work for 40 or 50 hours a week, and then here's me, here's us leading our whole church into this culture of discipleship and mission. Um, teaching through the book of Acts, using it as a manual to train us in that lifestyle. Here we are recruiting you to lead groups and to serve in ministries, calling you to join us in this sustained outward movement, giving everyone in our neighborhoods and networks and our workplaces and our families an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. Here I am doing all of those things, and it starts to feel like for me there's a dissonance, a dissonance that was brought to the front when we had some uh, couple over for dinner a few months ago, and they were on their way over and looked at each other, and, and she said to her husband, they're going to ask us to do something. If when you see me coming, if when you see Steph coming, all you think is, we want you to be a cog in the wheel of this machine called Regeneration Church, that we want your time and your energy. It starts to become, Kyle and Steph are only interested in the things that we can do for them. Kyle and Steph are only interested in the time that I can give to lead or to serve in ministry. It starts to become... Does Jesus have any interest in what I spend my life doing for 40 or 50 hours a week? Does Jesus have any interest in what I do as I parent? Retirees ask, does Jesus have any interest in what I spent my career doing? Is work just a distraction from the way of Jesus? Is it a necessary end so that we can feed our family and have a house and give to the church. This morning I want us to think about the place of work uh, in the story of Jesus, which is an interesting time to think about that because as you and I drive by businesses in our area, what do we see on the doors, right? We see help wanted. And so this morning my sermon is called Paul Tent Making and the Gift of Work the gift of work. So if you've got your Bible, meet me in Acts chapter 18. Um, if you'll remember last week, we were in Acts 16. Paul was in a city called Philippi. He lives Philippi, moves on to a city called Thessalonica, onto a city called Berea, onto a city called Athens. 
And then he ends up in a city called Corinth. And this is what it says in Acts 18, verses 1 through 3. There Paul left, then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. It's that last sentence that sticks out to me, this idea that while Paul was planting a church and making disciples and preaching the gospel, he worked. He worked. Paul makes tents. Tents, uh, in this time in history, it's, it's more akin to making a, a house than it is just to making something that you spend a weekend. I don't know why you people do this, but you go where there is no air conditioning. Nature is to be protected from, right? It'll, it'll woo you over with its beauty and with its wiles, and then it will break your foot, right? Um, no, nature is to be protected. God made me for a time when there would be this thing called climate control. You know, can I get an amen? You know what I mean? So a tent is not this thing where you spend an enjoyable weekend away with your family. It's, it's a place that you live in a time when houses are, are hard to come by. And Paul, as a tent maker, has discovered that his job is very, very similar to many jobs in a pandemic. You can kind of do it from anywhere, right? So Paul is in the habit of making tents. Uh, he does this in Corinth. He does this in Thessalonica. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, a letter he writes to that church there, he says, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Now, you'd think he'd say, be saying, like, remember, because we stayed up late and having really hard conversations and preaching and leading Bible studies. And he says, no, night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. Turns out that Paul's habit, as he goes from city to city, is to work so as not to burden believers with his own financial needs. Now, a question should be arising in your mind. If Paul worked uh, so as not to burden believers, so the church obviously wasn't paying a salary, why then do we pay a salary for our pastor, right? Uh, this was not a really fully common thing in the way you and I know it until after Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But what uh, I, I'm thankful for what Paul has to say on this particular issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. By the way, I should also know, I think I am um, the last generation of full-time pastors in the United States. I think most pastors after me, unless you're working for a church like a, a Walmart church, like a big mega church, most pastors will be bivocational. Most pastors in the UK are bivocational. They have a day job and then they're pastors. Um, I think that is a cultural thing happening. But look at what Paul kind of gets into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be all over today, by the way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is defending his ministry to the church in Corinth because after he left it, some other people have come in and said, you know, that Paul, he's a pretty abusive leader. That Paul, he's a narcissistic leader. We should cancel him, is what they're saying of Paul. And so Paul is trying to defend his ministry in his letter, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's defending himself on the basis of the fact that he never took money from them. He says in verse 18, I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Paul says, when I go to a church, when I plant a community, when I start it, even though he'll say in a minute, I have more of a right to income than anybody else, 
I don't take any income. What's interesting is it's as if Paul is setting a tone where he says, I'm the first pastor you've ever had. And so for me, you're not going to pay me anything. But then in this passage, we're going to watch him lay a foundation for the ministry workers that come after him to receive pay from the churches they serve. Look at me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 7. It says, what soldier has to pay his own expenses? None. They get paid. What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? It's entirely fair for the people that own White House farms to enjoy a gallon of nice fresh apple cider in the fall, don't you think? Um, uh, what shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? He says, am I expressing merely a human opinion or do the scriptures say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating it as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. He says in verse 11, since we planted a spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach the gospel to you, shouldn't you have an even greater right? He says, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? He's saying, listen, you, you, you pay Barnabas, you pay these other people that came through after me, but I like started this thing. So shouldn't I get more? But Paul says, he says, we've never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Jesus. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple. See, in the Old Covenant, when there was a temple, the priest, there'd be these offerings brought, cattle, pig, whatever, not pig, because they didn't do pig, so cattle, um, maybe a goat or a sheep, and, and it would be put on the altar, but the priest would take a portion of it to feed them and their families. Isn't that nice? Um, and so he says, in the same way, it's going to continue to work like this in the New Covenant, that those who serve at the altar get a share in the sacrificial, altar, the sacrificial offerings. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. The Lord, verse 14, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Now, I looked up that Greek word support, uh, and it means I should have an airplane, a personal airplane. So uh, the ushers are going to come. We're going to pass a bucket now. I'm, I'm hankering after a Cadillac, right? No, it just says that there should be uh, this sense where those who labor in the gospel among us should benefit. Uh, and it's interesting that Paul, basically, again, he's saying, I'm going to give you a free pass on me because I'm the person that introduced you to the gospel, Paul says. But everybody after me should be supported uh, through you. And that becomes the, the case within the early church of within about 10 years after uh, this incident in Acts. Paul says, as for me, I work among you. Isn't that interesting that Paul works? Paul says, I work among you so as not to burden you. He says, I work among you to demonstrate that your work has value in this kingdom that is now breaking into the world. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing a church um, that has become so obsessed about the return of Jesus, they've gone a little wacky. We believe that Jesus, that his bodily return is imminent. That means it could happen at any moment. It could happen now. 
Some people in the church of Thessalonica, they, they got so spiritual that they quit their jobs so that they could be ready for Jesus. Right? They would, you know, when, when, when Jesus comes back, they don't find them nursing or delivering the mail or training people how to lift weights. Instead, they find them in a prayer meeting and worshiping. They want to be the spiritual people. God told me not to work, they say. And so Paul says back to them, well, actually, if you don't work, you don't eat. Because, you know, that was a good idea for a week or two. But imagine Craig and Danielle say, hey, we're going to quit our job so we can be ready for Jesus. And, you know, eventually the savings is going to run out. And eventually they're going to be knocking on our door saying, um, they're going to be calling the care team. Could I get a, like a little grocery gift card? Right? And then eventually it's like they're basically living in our house because their house got repossessed and they don't have cars anymore, but they're just praising the Lord. And so Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Paul also says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. It's one of my actually all-time favorite Bible verses. This is what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. He says, make it your goal. Okay, the Bible is about to tell you what your goal should be. Right? Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, all of you with your Facebook apps open, and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. In the kingdom of God, In this place where what God wants done is done, Paul says a worthy ambition, a godly ambition, a good goal is to work. Is to work. Paul says in line with all of Scripture that work is a gift. Work is a gift, which is surprising to hear because, let's be honest, work is actually pretty terrible most of the time, right? Um, there's a lot of stress. Uh, we worry about money. We get into arguments with our coworkers. We have a boss or a manager we don't like. We have somebody we manage that we struggle with. Work is hard. And so it can leave us with this impression that work is not something that God intended for us, that work is a, a temporary thing. But actually, when we look at the book of Genesis, when we look at how God created us, we find that work is a pre-sin condition. Before sin entered the world, we worked. Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be all over the place. Okay, so Genesis 1, this is where it all begins. This is where God makes the world and everything. And in verses 26 through 28, when God is making human beings, he says this. Genesis 1, 26, he says, Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. He says, let us make human beings to be like us. What does it mean to be like God? This is what it says. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock, all the wild animals scurrying on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign, not reign from the sky reign, but Princess uh, Queen Elizabeth reign, govern the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. Work is an essential part to being a human being. God created us to work. This is why all those decades ago when overnight 
the steel mills just closed. And those of you who were alive then can remember this. When the steel mills closed, there was this despair and hopelessness and malaise that just like settled over the valley and has not gone anywhere. Why is that? Because an entire generation was robbed of their humanity. They were robbed of what is essential to humanity. I don't know if you've ever met someone who loved their job and then uh, because of a physical injury has to suddenly stop. So this actually happens a lot to like professional athletes, right? They get hurt, they have to stop doing this work and what falls on them is a profound depression because an, because an essential part of their humanity has been denied them. To be a human is to be designed to work. And we don't entirely have time to get into this, but even in heaven, there will be work, right? Heaven is not sitting on a cloud, playing a harp forever. That sounds tremendously boring, actually. In the new heavens and the new earth, you will die. Those of you who are in, are in retirement, you should soak it up now because very soon you will die. Isn't this a cheery thought? You will die. <laughs> and you will wake up face to face with Jesus and he will say to you, I'm glad you're here. We've got work to do. Scripture says in the book of Revelation that we will reign with him. Right? There will be work to do in the new heavens and the new earth. But in between, you know, when we were created and when we get to heaven where there's this thing that happens where sin enters the world and it doesn't just wreck our relationship with God, it also changes our relationship with work. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world, God is pronouncing a series of, well, this is how it's going to be now, right? And he says to Adam... Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, all the ground is cursed because of you. Right? Now, if you, none of you are, not a lot of you are farmers. I mean, if you're a farmer, you know weeds grow up. It even talks about thorns and thistles. But have you ever noticed, FYI, work is hard, it's taxing, it's stressful. It damages our bodies. It wreaks havoc on our souls and our minds. That's because the Lord goes on to say, all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. I mean, we've got a lot of young marrieds at our church, and if you're not a young married, you can remember this season when you were, scratch, you were struggling to scratch a living to put food on the table, right? It will grow thorns and thistles of you. It's, it says, by the sweat of of your brow, you will have food to eat. Something has happened to our relationship with work. It's not what it used to be. The good news is it won't always be like this, but how is work now? Tim Keller has an excellent book. It's called Every Good Endeavor, Every Good Endeavor. It's a, it's a theology of work. Um, and he says in that book that because of the fall, because of sin, Work has taken on four facets that weren't there when God created work. Um, by the way, FYI, God worked, right? He created, he works, and then he rests from his labor. So um, work has ha four things have happened to work. Work has become fruitless. Work has become pointless. Work has become selfish. 
And work has become this thing that reveals our idols. And the first thing is that it has become fruitless. And by fruitless, this is what we mean. Keller says that in all our work, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or a missionary or a student or a nurse or, or a dot, whatever we are, we will always be able to envision far more than we can accomplish. We will always be able to envision far more than we can accomplish, both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. Almost every like 20-something I know has what I call a quarter-life crisis, about 26, 27, 28. Sometimes it lasts until your early 30s in this window. I don't know if this happened to previous generations. I think it happens to ours because of social media where you watch your friends kind of living this very successful life, so it appears. Um, you know, the beautiful house, beautiful kids, beautiful cars, everything's going right, and it leads somebody in their 20, early 20s, mid-20s, even up to their early 30s to all of a sudden have this crisis of my life is not what I envisioned it would be. Some of you are looking at me like, wow, are you reading my emails? Are you reading my journals? Um, but I would even say people in retirement are prone to think this. I, th I envisioned so much more for my life, right? I think people in retirement feel the fruitlessness of work. I think people in retirement sometimes also very keenly feel the pointlessness of work because they look back on 30, 40, 50 years spent in their career and they suddenly say, why, what did that even do, right? I think it's the pointlessness of work that is just so coming to the fore in this cultural moment where we see all these help wanted signs because I think people are struck by the pointlessness of it. Like I could stop working and the government paid me to play Fortnite all day. And the world is now carrying on just fine, so what was the point of me doing that, right? Uh, I think in particular, people in healthcare are feeling that way because this is an unending journey for them, right? Work is fruitless, uh, it's pointless. I love this verse out of Ecclesiastes. If you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, it, it reads like a 16-year-old girl up in the middle of the night whose boyfriend just dumped her. It's not written by a 16-year-old girl, it's written by King Solomon, but in a similar dark night of the soul, right? And so he says this in Ecclesiastes chapter two, I came to hate all my hard work here on the earth, for I must leave to others everything I have ever earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How pointless, he says. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Work is fruitless, it's pointless, it's also selfish. Keller says that we have a powerful inclination of the human heart to make work and its benefits the main basis of your meaning and identity. Work is no longer a way to create and bring out the wonders of the created order or to be an instrument of God's blessing, serving the needs of our neighbor. Instead, he says, it's become about distinguishing ourselves from our neighbor, right? Work is no longer about, 
I'm going to partner with God to bless the world and give it order. We'll come back to that. It's now about how do I distinguish myself from my neighbor, right? And maybe you don't experience selfishness in your own work, but I guarantee you every single one of you is thinking of a coworker or colleague who does demonstrate that kind of selfishness in the workplace. Right? So work is fruitless, pointless, selfish, and it reveals our idols. And then t- here's where Tim Keller says, idols of comfort and pleasure make it impossible for a person to work as hard as necessary to have a faithful and fruitful career. Think about that. We idolize comfort and pleasure, and then we get this job, and it's like, wow, this is really hard. I'm just going to quit. Right? Idols of power and approval can lead us to overwork or to be ruthless and unbalanced in our work practices. The idol of power and success is where we get hustle culture, right? It says idols of control take several forms, including intense worry, lack of trust, and micromanagement. I think this has been a really good sermon by Tim Keller today. I don't know about you. Um, When he says it better, why even try? But I think... This idea that work has revealed our idols is is in particular very, very clear in this cultural moment where people just aren't working. In all of us, COVID-19 revealed idols. There's not a person I know, including myself, that COVID-19 did not reveal an idol. Right? And so it has revealed in our culture this overwhelming addiction to comfort and pleasure that says, I don't really want to work hard. Right? It has revealed uh, in us a remarkable selfishness. It has revealed in us the pointlessness of work. I did all of that work. I mean, some people are saying, I put my life in danger. Right? And for what? Right? And I think sometimes what I hear people doing is this kind of condescending judgmentalism about people, like people are so lazy, like spit it out of your mouth. And that that might be true, right? But really what Jesus comes to do is even when we feel like our work is pointless, right? Even when we feel like our work is fruitless, Jesus comes to rescue us out of that and to give us a new story and new meaning for our work. And so to be good missionaries in this moment means to have a good news answer to a cultural issue that we see, right? God's kindness leads us to repentance, right? So going to your grandson or your nephew or your friend who doesn't want to work and calling them a lazy so-and-so is probably not going to motivate them going to them with the good news of the gospel that gives a better story for our work could. So what is that better story? That's what I want us to spend our last little bit on together today. What is the story that we get from our work? And let's start with this again, that work is a gift given to us and is an essential part of our createdness, which is why Paul works. It's why Jesus works. Jesus does all of his public ministry in the last three and a half years of his life. Prior to that, Jesus was a carpenter. Somebody said to me, I'm 33 this year, 
Uh, somebody said to me, oh, you're in the year of Jesus. I was like, what does that mean? Well, it's the year that Jesus died. Well, okay. <laughs> Let's reel that in. Um, uh, but really, your early 30s in Bible times was more like your 40s or your 50s, just life expectancy-wise. And so really, like Jesus, by the time he was six, seven, and eight, would have already been helping get Joseph uh, with the carpentry work. By his teens, he would have been kind of standing on his own. By his 20s, he would have been a businessman in his own right. Jesus dignifies work, right? Jesus doesn't just come to do the spiritual stuff, right? He, he dignifies work. Work is part of God's design for our lives. This is why, again, like the early years of retirement can be so profoundly difficult for people. This is why people work well past their prime. It's why you have like the surgeon, like, I'm so excited to operate on you today. You know what I mean? Like, because they don't want to let go, right? Because they're holding on in the best way to a good part of their createdness, right? That's why there's kind of be this funk that can descend on people in the early years of, of retirement. It's why work can mess with our heads and our hearts so much, because it's an essential part of our createdness. But the second thing is that Jesus redeems work. He redeems its pointlessness and its fruitlessness, its selfishness, its idolatry. He redeems it as he invites us to see our work as a partnership with God in blessing the world. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, when there was this break away from the only church of the time, which we now call the Roman Catholic Church, we tend to think it was about, especially if you're familiar with this, if you've been hanging around the church for a while, like it was about like, do works save us or is it by faith alone? And how does salvation work and justification? And that's true, but another big element of the Protestant Reformation was this. A nursing mother is as close to God as is the Pope. There was this hierarchy, right? There was this hierarchy of the Pope and the priests and then all of us down here that are farming and ditch digging. And Martin Luther radically said, if you're going to dig a ditch, dig it to the glory of God. Martin Luther rather awkwardly says, God milks the cow through the hands of those who work the udders. Through farmers, God is feeding the world, right? Through teachers, God is nurturing this next generation so that the culture can continue. All uh, doctors and nurses and all of you who work in healthcare, like, carry on. I love, by the way, Mercy Health. I don't know if you noticed their mission statement to extend the healing ministry of Jesus, right? So some of those are a little more obvious. If you work in, like, refrigeration, sometimes it's like, how am I partnering with the Lord uh, to... to to go about this, right? But really all work is this means by which we partner with God to bless others. It's the way that God is extending his generosity to all of the earth all of the time. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. And so by the way, that totally demolishes this idea that Kyle is a professional Christian and I am not. We are all professional Christians. It just so happens that I do that with a little bit more of my week than you, right? My job, as high and holy as it is, uh, is still toil. There are still emails to send and paperwork to fill out and things to think through and conversation. It's still, it's still hard. 
Um, and so work is primarily, Scripture says, a gift to receive as an as aspect of our own createdness, as a means by which we bl- join God with blessing the world. Work is a gift to receive, but it's also a gift to give. We are called, each one of us, to a ministry of excellence. Ecclesiastes, as all over emotional it is, also says, whatever you do, do well. And can I be honest, it sometimes feels like most Christian businesses I encounter are doing the bare minimum of excellence. Like, the Christian coffee shop predictably almost always has the worst coffee. Christian business people are more likely than not to kind of have the lowest standard of ethics and always be trying to, like, eke a penny out of their customers, right? Like, if you're a teacher, sometimes, like, the the biggest obstacle to you living on missions toward your colleagues is, like, the Christian teacher down the hallway, right? If you're a nurse, the biggest obstacle is the Christian, like, uh, right? The, the call of Jesus is to do whatever we do well, to be the best at what we do. Now, I know this is kind of a function of my personality coming out. I'm an Enneagram 3. But the call of God on our lives is to do everything we do with the utmost excellence. And part of that means, like, the, what makes me crazy about Christian business people who, like, kind of are very stingy is it, a, it is a total removal of the idea that God is their provider, if God is our provider, and if you're a business owner, we have a lot of business owners in our church. I was thinking about this the other day. I started making a list with some people, and there's like 20 people that own their own business in our church. You should be the most generous and the most willing to get the short end of the deal, knowing that the Lord will make it up for you on the back end. Right? I'm not saying be taken advantage of. I'm just saying don't be stingy. Um, we're called to a ministry of excellence. That is a gift that we give one another. And by the way... Uh, our shared work, all of us, is the gift that we give to fuel the mission of our church, right? Like, I am fully aware that, like, I don't know if you've noticed, I enjoy about three meals a day, sometimes four. Um, you make that possible, right? You, if Jack Tennant is cute and clothed, that's kind of on you, right? Um, <laughs> And so we're thankful for that, but we are also thankful to give of what we make to the work of Jesus because we know that what Jesus is doing here is way larger than feeding my son. And so, um, and so there's that work is like the fuel for mission, but I would also add today that um, your work is, your ultim- is, is the place of your mission field. A lot of you are going to go to work tomorrow morning, uh, and you will spend more time Collectively, our church will spend more time tomorrow between nine and noon with, with non-Christians than I will in the next month, right? Like you will encounter and rub shoulders with more non-Christians tomorrow morning than I will in the next month. I am trapped behind a wall of Christians and I cannot get out. <laughs> I love you. Um, and I'm glad to be. But, uh, but there's this reality that um, I want to call and equip you to see your work as a mission field. And, and every once in a while, I get pushback on this um, when I call people into lifestyle discipleship where they say, I have more time to do this. I don't. I have far less time uh, to be on mission 
to rub shoulders with non-Christian people, to make disciples of non-Christian people than you do. Because I've got, I've, I'm, we're the backup on the end, right? We're doing the care so that you can kind of push you forward that way. Um, but ultimately, if you get nothing else from what I say today, this is, this is really wanna, what I want to get to you, is that we tend to compartmentalize our life, right? We tend to compartmentalize our life. Here is my Christian world, and here's the rest of my life, right? Um, so I'll, I'll volunteer, and I'll lead a group, and I'll be in a group, and I'm going to really trust that five to seven hours I give a week, or maybe two to three, that that'll be plenty uh, to to form me into the Christian I'm supposed to be. That can't possibly be true if Jesus spent three and a half years, eight hours a day, 365 days a year with 12 people who on the other end of it were still pretty messed up, right? Um, And so really what we need to learn to see what Jesus sees, which is that our whole life is a school for our formation in the way of Jesus. Our whole life matters to God. Our whole life, even our work, is a place where we are trained and schooled in following Jesus. Your job, whatever it may be, is just your major at this college called Practicing the Way of Jesus University, right? The core curriculum for all of us is the same, but we all have elected a vocation. We have chosen our electives at this college to grow into the likeness of Jesus in these particular ways through this particular work. When I was a kid, there were these bracelets that people would wear that said WWJD, and I love being at a church where only probably 75% of people know what I'm talking about because the rest of you got to miss Christian tchotchke culture of the 90s. And, um, but the bracelet meant WWJD. What would Jesus do? And you'd wear that bracelet, and then when something happened, it was like you were supposed to think, like, Jesus, like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, what would Jesus do? And, I'm, and, it, and it's close, but it puts the effort on us instead of on Jesus. Because actually, the question behind what would Jesus do is this, and this is what Dallas Willard says discipleship is. Discipleship is doing exactly what Jesus would do if he were living your life. It's not looking at the life of Jesus and trying to translate into our life some principle from his life so I'm a better person. It's if Jesus was a nurse, if Jesus was a teacher, if Jesus was a stay-at-home parent, if Jesus was a grandparent, if Jesus was a retired whatever, if Jesus owned his own business, how would he live? How would he function? How would he be? And whatever he would do are the things that I'm supposed to do, the things I'm supposed to say, and the posture I'm supposed to live with, and the character I'm supposed to seek to attain to. Jesus is not interested in this one hour that you give him. He is interested in all the rest of the hours. He is jealous for me, is what we just sang. He is jealous that every moment of every day, of every frustrating assignment, of every difficult conversation, of every stressful, overwhelmed, run-down week, that every moment of that would be marked by his presence and something that forms you to know him more. That's what he's longing for. And so he says of our whole lives, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Amen? Amen? Amen. Thank you.
Here at Regen, we have a revelation and response culture. And what does that mean? That means we want to hear what God is saying, and we want to do what he says. And um, there's a couple of reasons why we want to do that. One is because scripture tells us to. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because the reality is Kyle can't preach a sermon to each of your particular situations and tell you what God is saying to you to do in your particular work situation unless we'd have to, yeah, we'd have to be here a really long time. And he, yeah, anyway. So the, the purpose of this time is to take a minute and to say, okay, Father, like I've heard your word, I've heard your scripture, and I want to invite you to speak to me about my particular situation. What are you asking me to do this week? How can I partner with Jesus in my workplace or in my home? How can I do what he's asking me to do? And what's the one thing that you're inviting me to do this week? So um, we're going to take a moment. I'm going to pray for us before and then pray for us um, after a moment of silence. And I just want to invite you to really say, like, Holy Spirit, I want to hear. I want to know what God's asking me to do this week and then just to listen for a moment. So let's pray.